But now the question is... USC and UCLA do. They're both Big Ten schools. Yeah. But where does that leave the rest of us? Who could possibly answer that question in this strange new era of analytics? Mad transfers. How did it get hit? Well, it looks to me like you portaled it. What? You know portal from wherever you were to here. What's that? It's a, a different kind of portal. It's just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. And realignments. They're both big pencils. Yeah. All we do know is the boys are back. And the Joe Beaver Show plots its own course. Now there are a few more topics that we have to cover. And we will not talk about transfers, and we will not talk about my mother. We will talk about what I want to talk about. Fair enough. Who's next? Who's next? Joe Beaver is on 1240 Joe Radio. Good morning, everybody. One of the busiest shows we've had in a while coming up as it's sort of come together, uh, fallen together, we stumbled into it. And not, not so much. Uh, these things do require, when you have four, I think, heavy hitter guests as we have today, uh, it takes... You know, I feel like, again, you know, Pacino and Glenn Gary, when he tries to show Jonathan Pryor, look at my book. You see my book. You see my <laughs> calls. I Look at my book. I can't, I can't do it. It's just, it's one of the great con movies of all time. Craig Robinson used to talk of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross with the guys on the bus. That's, the, I, I enjoyed visiting with Craig on a number of things over the years, but perhaps our shared love for Glenn Gary, Glenn I, Ross. I knew that. We would laugh. About remember the scene. How about when Ed Harris says, "What about when Alan Arkin? What about when Jack Lemmon? What about when Jonathan Price? What about when Kevin Spacey says?" And we would just compare lines and laugh about it. And and he would turn around sometimes and say, "Guys, you hear what we're talking about? That is the greatest guile movie of all time. <laughs> the guile, the, the the bile too." But Pacino and trying to you know tell Jonathan Price, "I can't meet with you to talk with your wife about rescinding the deal we had." Because look at my book. You see my book. He keeps saying, oh, yeah, I showed you my book. I, I don't have time. Everybody <laughs> talks fast. Everybody. It's a brilliant piece of work. David Mamet's magnum opus. It's depressing. It kind of is, but it, I've, I've chosen to go the other way with it. <laughs> it's funny. It's very funny. I it saw is it depressing. one time when it first came <laughs> no, out in the not, theaters. It didn't have the effect on you that day that Naked Gun did on me when I went to the theater by myself. <laughs> it had the opposite effect. It had the opposite I remember effect. thinking, okay, what it opens with a real on? dark office. Yeah, it's dark, man. Oh, man. Alec Baldwin's opening speech, we used to yeah. play that to our hood-to-coast team before we'd run. Is that where he says coffee is for losers? Yeah, coffee's for closers. Put that coffee down. Always I mean, be closing. Yeah, the greatest sound bites in the history of film come from that movie. <laughs> Anyhow... Now, my son is very interested because he's in sales. Have him see Glenn Gary, yeah, Glenn Ross. It'll be an inspiration it. to him. I can't wait. It'll make him love the field that he's in. Yeah. So, anyhow, the guile. It came together nicely with all the calls and the yeah, timing it of it all. And we're going to get started here in a moment with baseball assistant coach Ryan Gibson. He's coming up here in just a few minutes to talk about the start of the season Talk about some of the younger, compelling, dynamic freshman players that 
expectations will be upon to make immediate and important contributions. Some veteran returners that I know Mitch and uh, Ryan and the staff are excited about, Rich, including Rich Dorman, who I visited a little bit with here and there. Josh is going to have all the games this weekend, our Mm -hmm. own Josh Warden, right here on 1240 Joe Radio beginning Friday, then again Monday. So we won't have Joe Beaver shows on either of those days, and I'm not sure we're going to have one on President's Day anyway. We weren't going to have one, and so this works out great because we we didn't put two and two together that, oh, well, we wouldn't have one anyway. So. We're not being preempted for Beaver baseball right. on Monday. Friday, yes, the Joe Beaver show, we will. So Ryan Gibson coming up in just a few minutes. And when I talk about a heavy-hitting lineup, you'll understand that the rest of it is, with the exception of a guy who, yeah, I don't know if he's a heavy hitter or not, might be more of a slapper, might be more, you know, a spray, a spray hitter. I, I don't know <laughs> if he's a heavy hitter or not. He probably is going to be because he's on the youthful side of things in the sports casting world, but he has a story. What is his story? Well, he's got a story relative to the Washington state men's basketball team, whom the Beavers play Thursday at Friel court Beasley Coliseum. I will have the opportunity to call that game. It's a late one Thursday, seven 30 pregame, a little after eight o'clock tip. There's a young man on the Washington State roster for Kyle Smith by the name of Dylan Darling. And it's the Dylan Darling story relative to our guest, and I have not yet learned his pronunciation. I believe it's Dice. I know it's Derek. Derek Dice, D-E-I-S. Now, it's possible that it's Dice. I I get that. But I've gone with Dice when he joins us at around 1140-ish, 11.45, We will have a quick tale about, and here's what I like about it. (laughs) Kyle Smith himself, the Washington State head coach, when talking about the presence of one Dylan Darling on his roster, said, yeah, it's kind of funny. He's quoted as saying, it's kind of funny. One of our Spokane TV sportscasters called me out of the blue saying, and this is all, the name wasn't mentioned in this article I read saying, hey, there's a guy that I've been covering in high school sports over here in Spokane that I don't think is getting a lot of interest. I think maybe, you know, he might be good. But the guy, Derek Dice, who I since learned, I poked around a little bit, who is this guy that put Kyle Smith and the Cougs onto this player who's played in 18 games and making a contribution for 14 minutes. But... Uh, The story comes that it was a TV guy who began with the disclaimer, I know I don't know anything, but, and to me, that's a victory for all of us in our (laughs) nonsense world. We do nothing. We know nothing. We sit there. We talk. That's what they tell us. And yeah, I mean, and what do we know? I remember one time in all my life, I went to football coaches here 20 some years ago and mentioned a guy and kind of had the the, the responses. "Ah, Not really. That guy went on to play quite a few years in the NFL. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then there was even a sense of admitting late, yeah, we missed him. We didn't get on him. Yeah. And we, I, the know-nothing local yokel, was trying to say, I saw a guy Friday night in a high school game. I assume we're recruiting him. He dominated, yeah. looks the part, and was told, eh. And that guy <laughs> went on to play somewhere else near down the road and play Did in the he? NFL, and we remember. needed him here. Yeah, that's right. But we... We, we dropped the ball on that. So the point is, anytime you see something, somebody 
make, you know, it's a little bit like Captain Kirk in the uh, Wrath of Khan when whatever her, you know, the late actress who played the role, I don't know the role well, but he says, keep following regulations and remind me. <laughs> you know, I mean, Kirk was take, in other words, take nothing for granted. Yeah. And I, so because of that miss that was admitted by the staff after the fact, I will never, if I see something or somebody, I'm always going to say, I saw a kid. I don't know if he can play or not. I know nothing. You know, I know nothing, but I did see a kid yeah. and he might be worth you looking into. Derek Dice has a story along those That's lines. That's a great story. I, I will, I will never do that because I can't tell. <laughs> Brian Curtis at 1205. He wrote Fields of Battle. He visited us almost six years ago now in the event of the 75th anniversary of the transplanted Rose Bowl game. We lost the last living member participant of either of those teams in the great Andy Landforce on January 27th. Mm. And Andy's featured in Brian's book. Andy made a huge impression on, on all who knew him, but Brian, who kind of comes to us from outside the market, but came in and did that deep dive into that amazing story of the transplanted Rose Bowl and fields of battle. Brian, who visited with us over five years ago on the show, yeah. will join us today. And then Bob Gilder yeah, at 1230. Really looking forward to talking to Bob about his career, things I've learned about his career that I heretofore had not known until kind of going in and doing some research on him and his opinion of the 16th yeah, hole yeah. at the Phoenix Open, a place that he won that event. He, he won the Phoenix Open twice <sighs> in his outstanding career. He's at 1230? Yes. Oh, I have to miss it. Well, you'll be listening on I will wherever be able to you're listen. going. I'm, I'm headed out. I, I have a, you know, when you go to see a specialist, yes. you don't mess around. You, no, you don't. And that's you, why I had to miss you the yeah, other day right, for a while. Right. You, you take them when you can get them. And I got He's it. a specialist and a gosh darn good one, too, as the singer in 1932 wrote. Prosperity is just around the corner. I'm a specialist and a gosh darn good one, too, <laughs> I think your guy said. Let's take a break and come back with Ryan Gibson next on 1240 Joe Radio. Continue here with the Joe Beaver Show. Ryan Gibson joining us talking baseball, which, believe it or not, starts on Friday. We'll have coverage, Michael, beginning at 1015. Pre-game show locally, 1030. Josh will be on 11 o'clock or thereabouts first pitch. Josh has a, a blessed life. He's a young, talented, ambitious, great voice, smooth, talented young man whom he, he also has a job that allows him to, he gets to see, he, he has the advantage over us and out at a lot of the workouts, hanging around the cage, visiting with the players and coaches. That's the best way to go about it. And he's, uh, he's going to prepare himself for a double A season with the Frisco What's the the team um, name? The writer? Or yeah, I don't Rough know. Riders? I don't know. It's not the Rough Somewhere Riders. In Frisco, Something like Texas. that. But he's going to go to Double A in the Rangers organization this summer. Congratulations to him. So we look forward to listening to Josh this weekend. We look forward to Beaver baseball getting started in a very intriguing year. And I'm sure it is for Ryan Gibson and the coaches to see just sort of what unfolds this weekend down at the the Sanderson Ford Collegiate Classic in surprise with the Beavers playing New Mexico to get things going on Friday, as John just mentioned. Coach Gibson, thanks for taking time. Am I correct? There's an excitement level and, and enthusiasm, optimism, but also a sense of intrigue about a lot of new players. You kind of want to see how they're going to roll out and play this weekend, I'm sure. 
There's no doubt about it. We are we are younger on the the position player group side of things, and so but against, against others in different uniforms is is going to be really exciting. Are there some hallmarks? You mentioned youth in the in fall ball in the winter preparations leading up to the start of the season, Ryan. It, about this group, some some broad stroke things that you could share with us about kind of what makes this group go. Yeah, it's a group that um, they have not shied away from the work, and we're again when I when I speak to the the position player group, it's a uh, it's as talented as a group that we've seen. I I've told a lot of people. I mean, I told Case that. You know, the group that had Larnick and Madrigal and Grenier and Quan and those guys um, different because they're uber-talented uber and athletic. Um, those those guys were a little bit more polished, I guess, um, as far as recruiting class goes. But I really feel like this group has the, has the talent and the athleticism to be to be pretty darn close to as good um, as that group was, you know, down the stretch when they were sophomores and juniors and, you know, some seniors. That is great to hear. It's also, you guys are coming off a year where you were one win away from going back to Omaha, so close. And so many key players, though, contributors from that. I mean, it's just the way the world works, but your entire outfield, essentially, of Justin Boyd, Jacob Melton, and Wade Meckler move on. The those guys all did great things, Ryan. So as you put together a lineup, put together a uh, a defensive alignment, and so on, what are you seeing? Some guys that you feel like, hey, may not be exactly right where all three of those were when they finished their careers, but have an opportunity to get there. There's no doubt about it. Um, when we look at just the outfield position um, with Lynn Benton transfer. Ruben Steele, uh, hmm. Ryan. Hey, hey, Ryan. I I don't know where you are or whether you can make an adjustment or not. I, we're not hearing you. You're you're breaking up on us. I don't know if there's another place in your world you can get to. Can you hear me now, Ryan? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, you were breaking up, and we lost pretty big patches of what you were saying. So I don't know if there's a better. Cell, uh, cell phone zone you could get into for the purposes of this conversation, but we're missing out here and there on, on your responses. I'm, I'm, so, I'm Yeah. I just walked out of the office out on the field, hoping that it'd be better. <laughs> uh, it's going to sure be colder. Works. It's going to yeah. be colder. I apologize. We appreciate it. But thank you for that. So you, you started with Ruben Cedillo and, and tell us first about him and then some of the other uh, players in the outfield to try to replace those starters and stalwarts from last year. Well, Ryan, it must be a cell phone issue or something. I, I you know, I, I don't know what's going on, and I'm sorry. I apologize to our listeners. We are not hearing them. So let's take a break and try to regroup. Maybe we'll call them again. We'll do that, and we'll take a break and be back with more after this on 1240 Joe Radio. Phone. Let's go right back to Ryan. Wait, Gip- hold on, oh. hold on. Okay, there we go. I don't know why it started up again. 
On this big star-studded day of guests, we're off to a stumbling start, stammering, stuttering. <laughs> we'll see what we can do, Spider Spider, as we continue on the Joe Beaver Show. Shoot Spider. Let's try it again with Coach Gibson as we get ready for Beaver baseball this weekend. Ryan, I hope we're both in a little better place. We were starting in the outfield with Ruben Cedillo, so please carry on if you can. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna move from where I'm at. So <laughs> okay, hopefully, thank you. Hopefully, it comes through clear. Sounds better. What do you got on Ruben first, and then other other answers, uh, guys you're looking for this weekend to fill some of those big roles? Yeah, so Ruben, Ruben being a, a Lynn Benton transfer, following in the footsteps of of the likes of Mel, Melton and Gavin Logan and things like that. Ruben gives us a junior college and older guy of a presence a presence, the way he plays the game, the way he makes really good swing decisions, um, plays an outstanding outfield, just a guy that can potentially come in and be big-time production out of the shoot. And then the stick, stick into the outfield with Easton Tall, Dallas Macias, Gavin Turley. These, these, all three of these freshmen have, have the, the upside in this game to be every bit of what you know we kind of saw from the likes of Mac and Boyd and Melton. And there's speed in the outfield too, it sounds like. Is that correct? I mean, you can chase down some fly balls now. <laughs> there, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, the the right field that Justin Boyd played last year and the center field that, that Jacob Melton played and the way Mac played left, we, we had a we had a great outfield just in, in terms of um, on defense as well. But this this group again, it's it's every bit as athletic, and that's it's just it's, it's fun to get to work with those guys day in day out. Mm-hmm. You had a guy in terms of productivity that on a certain level you say, well, we'll just plug this guy in and he'll hit three sixty with seventeen homers and eighty three <laughs> RBIs. And I refer to Jacob Melton, the Pac twelve Player of the Year. Again, while I say there may not be somebody to act, do exactly that. In Gavin Turley, I, I keep reading and hearing great things about the potential and the upside with this young man. Tell me a little bit about Gavin's game and how he's developed in the fall and here in the winter. He he has developed as a as a as a ball player first and foremost. So just approach at the plate, um, all on those aspects he's gaining. He's getting a ton as far as becoming more of a complete hitter. His his bat speed and the way he moves the bat through the zone is just it's different. He can he can hit balls that that others just don't hit. Kind of similar to how Melton had that that almost freakish ability. And so as Gavin continues to develop and put it all together, he is somebody that we can project down the road to be a you know. Uh, for sure, a double-digit home run type of player. Hmm. And you mentioned Dallas Macias, too, an, an intriguing young man from what Mitch himself has said, big, bad, and strong, can run. What about Dallas? And, and again, with his upside, as you've worked with him in the fall and winter, what you see coming from him maybe early and throughout here in his time at Oregon State? Uh, Dallas has, he's got a great brain. He has he has what it takes between the years. Um, there's there's a, a compete to him and a and you know what you're going to get every single day. You know what you're going to get when he's in the box. There's not a lot that 
that really, really gets to him. Um, and even speaking to that even more, he's, he's, he's always on time. He's a guy that, um, timing, timing's hitting, obviously we all know that, but he, he finds a way to show up on time, no matter who's on the mound. And that, that knack to be, to be that type of guy, it's, you know, it, 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 it produces good things. Ryan Gibson joining us on the Joe Beaver show. We mentioned guys you've lost a little bit, people you're trying to, and starting with the outfield. But on your infield, first of all, defensively, maybe, Ryan, a thought on that, how you feel you're set up. But also, for the offensive productivity, you bring back Garrett Forrester and Travis Bazana. Are these two, how critical are these young men in terms of steady, day-to-day lineup guys, leadership, all of that? I'm sure you're expecting big things from both. Yep, they're going to be they're going to be the heartbeat of the offense on any given day, any given lineup. Um, I can see I can see where Travis fulfills more of a leadoff leadoff two hole type position for this club, and obviously Garrett will hit in the middle and you know continue to what continue to do what he's done his whole career. That's driving a lot of runs and um, strikes. He you know was. Is there anything, and you were breaking up again there in the last answer, with Garrett and his development in game, power last year started to come, and, and, and he was driving the ball with authority later in the year. Do you think there's a chance to translate whatever it is he found, whatever it is you worked with him to help find, to, to maybe be a guy that can drive the ball consistently? It's a hard thing to do, but do you see him taking a jump in respect to that? Oh boy! Make make better out front, opposed to a little bit deeper. So he's still making the great swing decisions and and getting getting contact out in front of the play a little bit, and that's what led to him driving the ball better. Mm-hmm. And Travis Bazana, what what has he worked on, and what are you looking for in terms of his next step and his growth as a hitter, player, etc.? Um, Travis. He he's he hasn't stopped working um, since last season, but his again. I keep saying I keep saying swing decisions and approach and things like that. But Travis has found a way to to keep a better posture at the plate and see pitches better. And he's starting to drive the ball with backspin to all fields. Um, and again, he had our he had our best chase rate out of anybody on our team from the from the fall with the the metrics that we collect. And how many, speaking of which, off the board question for a moment, the metrics you collect, is that a bunch of them? And do you weigh those uh, with, with great, I guess, uh, attention to all of the metrics, or is it just a tool of evaluation, or do you make decisions somewhat based on those, or what? These aren't, these are, I'm not going to say they're basic, but they are. They are, in a sense, on. on hmm. What pitches are we making? Soft contact. We mm-hmm. can use. We can use that data mm-hmm. to then to then work on things. Um, so it's not necessarily a. It's not a techie approach by any means, but 
we want to know, we want to know that our guys are, are making, making good decisions up there. Um, it's when it comes down to it, the best hitters in the game, they swing at the right pitches and they don't miss them. Mm-hmm. Ryan, how do you feel about behind the plate? The, the depth there, Tanner, just uh, what you've got uh, catching this year. Yeah. Tanner, to me, he's already probably the best receiver in the country. Um, and he's made big strides with the bat this, uh, this winter and, and late into this past fall. And so we expect Tanner to have good offensive production. And then again, just be that, that rock behind the plate for the pitching staff and with Wilson Weber, um, the depth is good. Wilson is much of that can bring, bring a ton of value with the bat. He's got an absolute cannon for an arm. Uh, and then even Easton Talt, who we've already talked about in the outfield, he can he can catch as well. And so um, we have good depth at the position. A few more minutes with baseball assistant coach Ryan Gibson with the Beaver season starting Friday and surprised. I want to leave off with the infield a little bit. We talked about the right side guys, Forrester and Bazana. On the left side, Kyle Dernetti comes back. Does it appear? I mean, I know there's competition at every position and nothing's a given, but you kind of see Kyle as he worked hard to, to, to earn and hold the shortstop position. What about at third base? What are kind of some people and guys you're looking at at those two spots on the left side, Ryan? Yeah, Kyle. Kyle's continued to catch every ground ball and fired across the infield. So if you can, you can catch it and play catch. At that position, that's that's the number one thing. And Kyle's done that. And he's made big time, big time strides with his with his offense. And so we have we have high hopes for for Kyle and Mikey Kane, who is a a transfer, a JC transfer out of California. Mikey Kane's done a really good job to show that he can play. He can play third or shortstop. Um, Tyce Peterson, another freshman, can play the left side of the infield. Uh, so we have what we feel like um, will be will be a little bit more of a, a steady presence on the left side. Last year we had a little bit of a rotating, you know, rotating trio or duo of guys playing third base. Or this year, I think uh, uh, a steady left side. Okay. Final thing, and this is more Coach Dorman's domain. I'm not sure we're going to be able to touch base with him before you guys leave. Or surprise, but I visited with him off and on. But in the pitching world, when you you lose, I feel like you're losing in Melton and, and Jerpy, transcendent type players, just having amazing careers and years last year. But you've got some arms. I know you're excited about. Uh, give us a, a, an overview, if you would, Coach, about just kind of what you think your pitching is going to be about. Who can step up and be a Friday night guy, perhaps, et cetera. Yeah, the freshman to sophomore year for Jacob Kamatz has been outstanding. Out of the cutter, and the kid is just a, a slow heartbeat guy. Another guy you know, and he's done done an outstanding job. And then the, the transfer player, kind of, I guess, X-factor type, type guy to our, our staff, for our rotation is Trent Sellers. And Trent Sellers just, I mean, he won a ton of games state, and the kid just competes. He's a bulldog. He has the the right makeup to be a Friday night guy in the pack, and that's that's exciting to see when you have somebody that's got that kind of good. Um, 
in with Mitch, Mitch Dar and I with having Dallas Buck going on Fridays. That was Friday night makeup yeah. every Friday night. And I think Trent Sellers hmm. is that type of guy. And I mean, you can't replace the Cooper Jerpy. He, mm-hmm. he obviously brought that as well, but Trent's going to, he's going to give it hell to do it. That's great to hear. Ryan Brown, big year last year, back end guy. You feel like, at least as you roll things out this year, that he looks like that rolls pretty well in his hands again this year. I do. Yeah, I do. We have we have a few guys that can do it, but we know Ryan can really do it. He's already proven he can. And when he gets the ball late in games, and that competitor comes out of them, it's it's fun to see. So. We, we, we really like Brownie in that role. And I don't know if you've declared, I think maybe the teams you're competing against have, so we'll see how this lays out in terms of what Mitch wants to share. You've talked about Sellers and Kamats, likely starters this weekend. In the other games, do you kind of know, could it possibly be a guy that finished well, very well last year, Jaron Hunter, maybe A.J. Lattery, maybe some others in the mix, but you've got, you feel like you've got some guys to turn to in the in the third and fourth games, it sounds like, as well. There's no doubt about it. Jaron Hunter's a guy that's going to get up there and get, get early soft contact to the sinker, to the slider, to the changeup, miss barrels. Um, and then the way Lattery was going last year until, until he got sick, you know, in the middle of the year, he was, he was as good as anybody there for a stretch. And Aaron's, Aaron's continue to develop and work at a quicker tempo and do things, do things, you know, how, how a starter should do and how a starter should prepare. Mm-hmm. And final thing, coach, and thank you for your time. We look forward to this is the first of many coming up here in 2023 of conversations, excited about the start of the year. There are a lot of newcomers, 13 freshmen on the roster. Is there a guy that, uh, I mean, I know you believe in all these guys that they wouldn't have the uniform on or be in this program, but if you had a player or two through fall and winter, that's kind of like, Ooh, they took maybe even a jump a little ahead of schedule or somebody uh, among the freshman group whom we've not touched on that you're expecting to make some contributions this year. Jacob Craig, Jacob Craig, the name that, that Beaver fans will know um, sooner rather than later. He's our biggest, biggest position player on the roster right now. He happens to be the youngest guy on the roster, but he just brings, Brings a lot of thunder with the bat. He's got he's got power to all fields, um, and he's another just tireless worker. Very 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 coachable, outstanding kid, um, and he can also he can pitch as well. Um, threw an inner squad this past weekend and lit up the radar gun a little bit. So um, Jacob's going to be able to contribute early on on both sides of the ball. Six five two forty. Is he just an imposing figure in the infield? Oh, he's, he's scary. He is scary. He is a big boy. And pitches to that body, it sounds like if you said he lit up the radar guy, I mean, he's got some real stuff on the bump too, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's at 94 and the ball is not straight. <laughs> it will it will run hard into to right-handers. And he'll he'll flat out go challenge too. He'll throw it over the plate against guys. He's not he's not afraid to to try and nibble or things like that. Ryan, it all sounds exciting. You guys are I know leaving. I think on Thursday, correct? To get down there for the four games. Is that when you depart? Yep, Thursday morning. Okay, coach. Have a great trip. 
Thank you, as always, for the perspective and the insight. We look forward to seeing what unfolds this weekend and throughout the year. We appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Sorry about the phone, guys. Yeah, it's no, okay. No it got better at the end. A good finish yeah. after a stumbling, stammering, stuttering, spider start. <laughs> we take a... He said he was only getting one bar. Oh. His particular phone, that's <laughs> the baseball area is the worst. He, he found the sweet spot in the end, and we're grateful for that. Yeah. It, I will say I had a conversation with him earlier this morning, and people have been asking about players and their status and so on, and one in particular, still very, I'm just going to say this for those of you who inquired about a specific guy, mm -hmm. still very much a part of the program. There may be more information uh, about that ball player down the road that's not really uh it was wasn't fully ryan's to give or maybe even not complete knowledge about a timetable and so on with respect to a highly regarded player that uh i know the program is still very excited about. Had, and he's not he's not on the roster but he's still very much a part of the program were you here and when i had sellers on I was not, and I didn't get to hear any of it, but I'm glad to hear a Buckian comparison. Yeah, I, I actually asked him that. I said, look, are you a, are you a bulldog? Are you the type yeah. that when, when Coach Dorman or somebody else yeah. comes out to get you, you're saying, get out of here. I'm right. finishing you're this mad. thing. Mm -hmm. And I even, you know, I invoked the name of Ben Wetzler. Yes. And he didn't know who that was. Right. I, I don't know if he did. He may not know who Buck is. He, yeah, he, he didn't chuckle, but he did chuckle kind of, yeah, no, he goes, no, I, I want to be left alone. Yeah. I'll fight you. And I asked him, and I prefaced it with, <laughs> do not get yourself in trouble. Don't tell me anything you're not supposed to tell me. But does, does the team know of a starting lineup of Friday, yeah. Saturday, Sunday? He said, well, I don't know, but I know I'm starting. <laughs> he didn't say Friday night. No, I, I, and I don't know if that's been announced or what's officially going to be rolled out. But I think in either Kamats or Sellers, yeah. you're looking at but the likely starter to open the season. As I did more research and was looking into it, I thought, oh, this guy could be the guy. Sounds like a guy and maybe yeah. He had the great numbers guy. at Lewis Clark State. Granted, it was NAI. It's high competition, though. Great that's numbers. a good program, good baseball. We'll take a break. And I will be, while the Beavers are down in surprise, I'll be in Pullman Thursday. And Seattle on Saturday, the win over USC's kind of re-energized. I think the Beavers and and fans and everybody. I'm sure. excited for those games. We're going to talk to a guy who covers the Cougs. In fact, he'll be coming to Goss to do baseball for the Cougs this spring. He went to Washington State, but he's one of the. I know I know nothing, but I saw a guy, and that guy. Upon his tip, this next guest tip ended up at oh, Washington I thought, State. Was he doing TV? At the I, I, I just anchoring, See, not a game. I think just yeah, anchoring yeah. sports, yeah, or covering, yeah, yeah. like our reporters cover the high school. And scene. he happens also. And I think he just play, saw play, a guy. Play, play it's one of those pull the camera probably off. Who's that guy? Yeah, yeah. sure. Who's that guy? Sure. Well, there, there's a story there, and we'll he, hear it from yeah. Derek Deese next on 12:40 Joe Radio. Our next guest is Dice. He, yeah. Like rolling the dice. Yep. Derek Dice. We weren't exactly sure. It kind of went back and forth a little bit like Johnny Bench did in the great Terry Stein, Terry Steinbach name, where he gave all three in one rendition on the radio with Ben <laughs> Scully. I, I, I laughed, and I've never forgotten it. Now, Terry Steinbeck on that play. Da, da, da. Now, the reason Steinbeck was able to make that throw <laughs> is because he's worked really hard at developing his uh, craft as a catcher, and uh, Terry Steinbach's come a long way. He gave a Steinbeck, Steinbach, Steinbach. But not a Steinbach. No, he didn't do that. <laughs> You're right. That's a good point. 
It is Derek Dice joining us. Uh, kind of an out-of-the-blue discovery I made, and Derek was kind enough to say yes to the request to give us a little more background to a story that I feel as though, Derek, and thanks for taking time for us. Uh, we'll see, I hope, this weekend on the Palouse. Uh, we're traveling tomorrow, and the Beavers and Cougs play late on Thursday night. But <laughs> a victory for all of us know-nothings who occasionally in our work come across a student-athlete in high school who makes an impression on us, and we want to share it with those higher than us in the sports world. It sounds as though you did that specifically with a player that's ended up at Washington State. So could you tell us from your perspective that story and how it played out? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty fun story. And again, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank and you. So just some reference on me. I'm, I'm a WSU grad. I've, I've worked in TV in the Spokane market since 2004. And I've actually been uh, a radio host and backup play-by-play guy for the Cougs mm-hmm. uh, for 10 years now. But um, my kids are getting close to being high school age, so I still keep a, you know, a little bit of touch with the high school sports scene here locally. And I'd seen last year that this kid, Dylan Darling, scored 99 points in his first two games of the season last year for Central <laughs> Valley. And so I'm thinking, what? In the, I've never heard of this kid. How, who comes out of nowhere and just scores 99 points? And then I, I later found out he's the son of James Darling, who was the star linebacker for the Cougs when I was in school in the mid to late 90s and went on to have a 10-year NFL career uh, as a linebacker for the, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Arizona Cardinals. And so then I'm, I'm just kind of keeping track of Dylan. Like I'm, I'm checking box scores mm-hmm. in the Spokesman Review, or when my station runs highlights of his high school Central Valley. I'm seeing if he's in it uh, type of thing. And right around Christmas time last year, I saw that he committed to Idaho State. Well, there's a connection. Idaho State's coach is a guy named Ryan Mooney grew up in Spokane. So I'm thinking, okay, that's, that must be maybe why he, he's finally gotten this D1 offer. But he keeps putting up, uh, he, I'm, I'm not kidding, guys. Like, I'm talking multiple 40 and 50 point games as a senior last year. And mm-hmm. after I got done going on a, a trip, filling in for Matt Chasnow with the Cougs uh, at Utah and Colorado last year, calling play by play, I finally asked the recruiting coordinator, I was like, hey, are you guys looking at this Dylan Darling kid? And Turns out I was maybe one of the first guys to ask him about him, but subsequently several people had said the same thing, like maybe you should take a look at this guy. Um, and he kept producing, kept producing. And so uh, strangely, this comes back to one of your freshmen, Tyler Bilodeau. Uh, they finally looked at him at the, wa- at the state tournament uh, in, in, on the west side of Washington last year, thinking, they re- admitted to me later, like, you know, we'll do our due diligence with this kid because, you know, Derek and other people have suggested it to us, and his parents are coos. He's probably not good enough, but we'll take a look anyway. And then they went and watched this game against Tyler Bilodeau's team, Kamayakin High School, and they were blown away. <laughs> and after that, they, they procured some more film on him, got him down to Pullman, and they offered him on the spot, and that's kind of how it happened. Did they ever admit to you that you were right? <laughs> It, it, it was kind of fun. I mean, uh, you know, just because I've gotten to know Kyle Smith and that staff, like I said, you know, doing uh, backup play-by-play for them and going on some trips. So, and yeah, and then to be able to, uh, you know, help with a, a Coug 
legacy whose mm-hmm. dad I knew from my time at WSU. Uh, it's, it's been kind of fun to see him you know, not only get to WSU, but, but play as a true freshman. That's really a, a, a wonderful story. And you, the, I came across it, Derek, in the following. The Blue Ribbon Annual College uh, Basketball Yearbook is one of the sources I go to for prep for teams. A very thorough job done by Chris Dorch and his staff through the years in Blue Ribbon. But in the Wazoo entry for this year, here is what Dorch wrote or at least the writer that contributed the piece, actually Bruce Pascoe, the longtime uh, sports writer in the West, wrote this. Last season, Darling obliterated Adam Morrison's greater Spokane League scoring record with an average of 35.6 and was picked up and picked up Washington's 4A Player of the Year honors. Playing so well, the word began to get out. And then here's a quote from Kyle Smith, the head coach for the Cougs. Quote, literally... One of the local Spokane TV broadcasters calls me and says, hey, I don't know anything, but I saw this guy, and he had 50 twice this week, and his dad played at Wazoo. Smith says, well, I guess we better take a look, quote-unquote. That, to me, is a victory, Derek, for all of us who occasionally stumble onto something and are actually right about him. Right, and, and I'm glad that the report mentioned Adam Morrison because that's exactly what I told the staff. I was like, hey, I've been around the greater Spokane League for a long time, and nobody's put up these kind of numbers since Adam Morrison. So that's pretty special company, so maybe you guys uh, had, mm-hmm. had better take a look. And uh, the Coops told me subsequently after they had offered him, a lot of big schools came offering after that, and that's a familiar recruiting tale for any WSU or Oregon State fans that they know this happens all the time in football or whatever. It's like we put in all the work recruiting a kid, and then the big guys come in later, right? And they're kind of poaching on on your guys. Well, um, it, it's nice that it worked out this time for Dylan Darling. Well, nice for having you know, and you're, you're kind of looking out for your alma mater. I respect that. And you went. You said when you were at school, it was roughly the same time frame as Dylan's father, James Darling. And I asked you. I mean, the name was very familiar to me as a member of what was called the Palouse Posse, one of the great defenses in the history of our conference. You remember the Palouse Posse, 93, 94, 95. I mean, those guys were nasty, and James sounds like he was in the middle of a lot of that. Yeah, he would have been, I guess, more towards the tail end of that. So he was drafted in the 97 NFL draft, and so his 96 would have been his final season mm-hmm. um, at WSU. And that Palouse Posse was more like, you know, 92, 93, 94. Okay. And there are some great names like Dwayne Patterson and Don Sasa, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Tory Hunter and a lot of these guys. Ron Childs, Mark Fields that went on to play in the NFL. So, yeah, he had some great linebackers uh, to, to learn from, for sure. Derek Dice joining us. So, Derek, what ex- are you a host of a morning show in Spokane Television? What else do you got going on in your life right now? <laughs> yeah, I'm the, I'm the morning news anchor for uh, the ABC affiliate up here in Spokane, which is KXOY. Uh, but I, I had done sports in Spokane for several years before I switched to anchoring news, which is Ironically, switching from sports to news, I mean, from, excuse me, from sports to news was what allowed me to start doing uh, stuff with Washington State on the radio because it really freed up my weekends having a more normal schedule anchoring the morning show. So, yeah, for the last 10 years, I've hosted the pregame and postgame shows for WSU football. And then I've been, again, the backup play by play guy for first uh, Bud Namick and now Matt Chaz. Now, so whenever there's 
crossovers between, say, football and basketball mm-hmm. season, I might pick up some basketball games. And then between basketball and baseball, I might pick up some baseball games. So, in fact, I'm coming to Corvallis yeah. in a couple of weeks for that uh, OSU-WSU baseball series because I think that's the same week that the Pac-12 basketball tournament happening in Vegas. We're looking forward to seeing you in our ballpark. Johnny, Yeah, you- it's funny, too, because Mike that you've been talking to is the main voice. And when there's football, I'll do basketball. When there's basketball, and I used to do baseball, not anymore. But same kind of a thing, and hosting a morning show. So, uh, really, yeah. So I completely understand what it is you do and how it all works out. And of course, pregame show for football and all that kind of stuff. So I get that. Well, we should compare notes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Tell us about the, so far what's happening with Kyle Smith's squad and and what kind of what you know. The I know they got the big win over the Huskies in the last outing at home. Are the fans coming out and and supporting? Washington State basketball at uh, at Beasley, or is it still a little bit of a struggle because of an under 500 record? It's still a little bit of a struggle. I was at the game on Saturday against the Huskies, and the crowd was maybe the best we've had all season. I think it was uh, you know somewhere close to 6,000. But it's been a really difficult season in the fact that uh, there were pretty big expectations for this team this year, and then through a series of events, uh, the roster really got decimated before the season ever started. So the first hit was S.A. Abigidi left to go join uh, the G League Ignite team. And it's you know hard to blame a kid like that for taking a couple hundred grand to play in the G League. Uh, the, the second hit was Deshaun Jackson, who's a 6'10 big man, uh, had a medical issue prior to the season that knocked him out for the whole year. And they've been kind of hush-hush about that. Uh, so I don't think he really wants what that issue was out in the, in the public, but that was really unexpected. And then uh, the other big unexpected thing is a kid named Miles Rice, who redshirted last year. He's from South Carolina, was supposed to be the starting point guard this year. He was diagnosed with lymphoma before the season started, and he's been through cancer treatments here over the last few months. So uh, there's three guys that might have all been starters, uh, and then Andre Yakimovsky had an injury that kept him out for about the first month and a half of the season, and he's only now finally rounding into form. So uh, what you saw in November and December was nothing like the roster they expected to be feeling before the season started. And yet less than 30 seconds, they still have the conference's best win of the year, beating the Arizona Wildcats <laughs> in Tucson, 74-61. to 61. I mean, so that shows what, in less than 30 seconds, that's what they're capable of on certain nights, right, Derek? Right. I mean, this is a great three-point shooting team, and when they're hitting, they can hang with anyone. They're always going to hang their hats on defense, but offense is going to be a struggle unless they're hitting that three. Okay. Derek, thank you for sharing your story. It's nice to meet you in this context. Look forward to seeing you in our ballpark in a few weeks. Thanks for taking time, and I hope to see you this weekend on the Palouse. Great to meet you, Derek, and thanks for joining us. All right. You bet, guys. Thanks for having me. Derek Dice, Spokane television personality, Radio host, play-by-play guy, and... Hello! 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 Let's hear a story. Someone somewhere a long time ago made a suggestion to a kid in L.O. You ought to go on the radio. But everybody knows... Take two to make a radio program. Down south, the Rau River kid wasn't so sure, and still isn't. I'm just a country boy. I ain't even sure I want to stay in this dang old radio business. Ah, but stay, they both did, and met up in the Mid-Valley 20 years ago with a compulsion to tell them about the Beavers in Corvallis and beyond. Tell them in Eugene, all of you, Salem, tell them! And in 
Jervis and Amity and Chad and Lewisburg. Ah, but not just for today. Why are those radio programs every week? Have you a radio program coming in right now? Yes, but a reminder. Life's Yes, call now, because The Joe Beaver Show is on the air on 1240 Joe Radio. Well, actually, you hold on calls because the downward dog phone line has uh, been usurped by our next guest. And we are grateful to both our uh, first two guests, Ryan Gibson and Derek Dice. And now a gentleman that we had the pleasure, John, of interacting with yeah. during the 75th anniversary of the Men of Roses as Kip Carlson's excellent uh, article was entitled, and Brian Curtis, the author of one of the best books I've ever read in any genre, Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, The Rose Bowl, and The Boys Who Went to War. It's a tremendous book. book. And Brian came out to be part of the 75th anniversary. I remember meeting in the Toyota Club. That's right. We had a show in there. We had a show. Brian was on, the great and now late Andy Landforce. By just a couple of weeks. And I thought of Andy uh, January 27th, just a few days shy of his 106th birthday. Wow. And Brian Curtis had not heard that news. He was kind enough upon hearing the news when I asked would he be willing to come on and join us on the Joe Beaver Show. To, he's written a lot of books, uh, uh, certainly uh, before and after and very busy in his life and writing career and and all of those things. But, uh, Brian, thank you for taking time for us. When I reach out to you about a person of the magnitude of Andy Landforce, you were kind enough to say yes. What kind of impression did he make on you as the last living member of that group that you had a chance to interact with in your research of your outstanding book? Well, thanks for having me on, and and my sincere condolences and thoughts are with Andy and his extended family. May we all live to 105 and keep going for hikes and walking. You know, my, my experience with Andy, when I started working on this book, really the sports illustrated story, which was back in 2013. And I went to Corvallis and everyone said, well, you got to meet Andy Landforce. Have you met Andy Landforce yet? And there had been some archives video in the Oregon state libraries. And Andy invited me up to his house and uh, we spent time together. We went for a walk. He was telling me all kinds of stories about the Rose Bowl and war and things like that. And then subsequent to that, I did, of course, my own research, even outside of Andy, and learned more about it. You know, one of the unfortunate things about doing a book, The Scope of Fields of Battle, was I could not highlight the stories of everyone. And Andy actually had a fascinating story, not just with the Rose Bowl, but his experience in war, which I'm happy to talk about, was just fascinating, but just didn't get the coverage I could fit in when you have editors and bosses and these kinds of things. But Andy was a tremendous man. And what's interesting is I was reading uh, his obituary mm-hmm. and uh, the Durden funeral home was doing the burial or will do the celebration of life. And Durden kept ringing in my head. And the Durden funeral home is actually named after Don Durden, who was the star on the 42 team who married into the family that originally had the funeral home. It's one of these full circle things. Yeah, that is amazing, isn't it? Brian Curtis, our guest. Brian, you, you spent time with Andy, and the book encompasses so many great stories. 
What can you share maybe that didn't make the book that maybe some of us aren't as, as aware of, or maybe even the obituary, as eloquent as it was, didn't go into with respect to your own memories and notes about what Andy shared with you, maybe about his wartime experiences or other aspects of his amazing life? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I went back and, and looked. There were recaps of each of the players, and I glossed on at the very end of the book. And I think his obituary may have had one line. Andy was telling me these stories about war. He got married young. He was at Fort Sill. He was a trainer and overseer of all kinds of dogs because dogs were used in war. One thing leads to another. He joins a tank, not a tank, a, a truck mechanic unit. And Andy is one of the few white men in charge of hundreds of, of African-Americans under his charge. And Andy used to have to sleep at night while during war, not being afraid of being killed by the enemy, but being killed by the hostility of some of the men who did not think that a white man should be leading them in battle. And Andy befriended some of his senior officers, who also happened to be African-American, and in many cases they saved his life by either waking him up before an ambush or getting intel about it. And I think that had a profound impact on Andy. And when he came home, he... He gave that, you know, senior members team, I remember him telling me, a huge hug. And I don't believe they stayed in touch, but he always re- remembered fondly this, this brave man who helped Andy get through it. And sometimes it may be hard for us now, 80-plus years later, to put that in context. But here was Andy, this, this young boy really from Oregon, leading this large regiment and fighting off multiple enemies, both outside and inside. But... He had such a kind heart. I'm sure that's how he's being remembered up there. Uh, even his folksy sayings, I remember thinking at first it was weird when I was in his house, and he would be talking about having a sunshiny day and things like that. But it's just, it's just who he was. I think he felt so very blessed in life. He, he wasn't very big in stature, if I recall, either. So, of course, he, <laughs> he would have a lot to worry about. Just yeah. that story alone is, could be a movie. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a slight difference, and it took a lot of research to figure it out. So Andy actually was played intramurals at Oregon State in 1941 and ran for student body president. And uh, Lon Steiner, who was your coach at the time, your football coach, saw Andy playing in the intramural game, and he thought that by bringing the student body president onto the Oregon State team, they would attract more crowds and publicity that year. So Andy actually suited up for two games during the regular season. Um, And then after Pearl Harbor, Andy, in his role as both a teammate and a student body president, when his teammate Jack Yoshihara of Japanese descent was taken off the field by FBI agents in December, Andy went over to the president's office and demanded that Jack be released and Jack be allowed to compete with his teammates, which unfortunately he wasn't and and ended up in an internment camp. But his desire to help others, to protect others, was evident then. So he travels with the team, goes to Durham, no intention of playing, no intention of suiting up. Lon Steiner kind of used him as a PR guy to get speeches, to drum up interest in the Rose Bowl game. And eventually, right before the game, he gets asked to go up in the booth to be a spotter for the actual Rose Bowl game. So Andy was absolutely there, but instead of being on the field, he was up in the booth for NBC Radio pointing out the Oregon State players. 
Yeah, and it was an assistant you write in your book, Jim Dixon, that came to, and he was in uniform. He didn't expect to play in the game, but he had his football uniform on when Dixon, Coach Dixon, comes up and says, get out of the uniform, change clothes, and go up and spot for the great Bill, I mean, Bill Stern. And, and he, he never, um, you know, I never, in the, t- in the limited time I was with him, I never heard regret. It was always gratefulness. Obviously, the loss of his wife was, was crushing to him, but going out for his walks and, and sharing any stories. I mean, there was no inhibition with him sharing with me anything about war, the game, uh, growing up, his travels to Alaska before enrolling at Oregon State. Jim Smith was the last living player who actually played in the game for Duke, who I befriended. Jim, unfortunately, passed away. It's probably been about three years now. Um, so there's no living players that were on the roster, no coaches. There's some sons and daughters still with us. But, but Andy was, was the last of a generation, so to speak. Brian Curtis, our, our guest, Fields of Battle is the name of the book, a tremendous read. Oregon State, the 42 Rose Bowl. So, Brian, did you expect, you partially answered my question there with the Duke side, I think, but did you go into this project thinking you were going to do something without any uh, uh, direct connection with anybody who was involved and Andy was a bonus? Or did you know about Andy before? What's funny is and tells you how stupid and innocent I was. I actually thought the opposite. Uh I thought I was going to track down all these players and coaches. And they're going to tell me phenomenal stories about war and the Rose Bowl. And it took me months and months. And Jim Smith was the only living one from Duke <laughs> that had played. And then, of course, I got to Andy Landforce. But I actually thought the opposite. And then I spent time tracking down the sons and daughters. And I spent time in the Dales and Hood River and Jefferson and Albany and Astoria and Eugene and Corvallis and all over Oregon going to see the sons and daughters and they'd say, Brian, we're, we're so grateful you're here, but dad never talked about war. We know he played in the Rose Bowl, but dad never really talked about it. So I went to all these wonderful, beautiful places in Oregon, but really couldn't get a lot of information. Me innocently thinking that these guys came home from war and told their families everything, which of course they did not And so one of the blessings of this book for me was because of the time and effort and research I put in, I was able to educate the families about their husbands, their dads, their grandfathers. I had their high school transcripts, where they were stationed in the military, what happened during war. And then certainly when I was honored to be back as part of that 75th reunion in 2016, the emotion was just so overwhelming. I remember standing in the tunnel about to walk out with this group to be honored at halftime of a football game. And there were so many tears in the eyes of, of these 60- and 70-year-old men and women who had always heard the stories about their dad or about their dad's teammates, but this was their first time ever meeting them after 50, 60 years. It was, it was powerful. Brian Curtis, our guest, author of the book uh, Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War. If you don't have it, get it. It's as good as it gets in terms of uh, yep. of sports literature, but it transcends that genre, certainly, Brian. And you've already touched on Andy going to, to battle, as it were, for Jackie O'Shahara. Your book contains some of the best material I've ever read on Jack's sad, but in the end, 
the closure with Dr. Ed Ray presenting him his uh, diploma and the graduation ceremony and the commencement ceremony. Tell us, if you can, what you remember about that, the poignant nature of that of that story. So, as I mentioned before, um, you know, Jack was a member of the team, had had played, was well-liked by teammates, but certainly after Pearl Harbor, there was a lot of anti-Japanese and xenophobia going in our country. The FBI, the Attorney General, and others did not want uh, folks of Japanese descent to travel. They were seen as a threat. And, in fact, there were many Japanese students. Uh, I shouldn't say many. There were dozens at Oregon State who pleaded with the president and had white friends and classmates plead on their behalf to not kick them out of school. But of course they endured hatred and were being spit on and just un- unconscionable acts against these folks who had really done nothing. Jack um, ends up uh, losing his family's business, moves back to Portland, uh, waves goodbye at the train station to his teammates going to the Rose Bowl, goes to a relocation camp first and then an intern camp in uh, Idaho ends up going to Utah on some sort of relief program out of the intern, actually plays football for a season, and goes through life, works in, I believe, air conditioning and plumbing and things like that up in the Oregon-Portland area. And it wasn't until the late 90s when President Ed Ray, and really it was spurred by a group of students who pushed for many of these Japanese-Americans who were expelled from school or were forced to leave, to be honored with their diplomas. Of course, many of them, unfortunately, at the time had passed. If you can ever watch the video of it, it it's truly an incredible moment and ceremony. You know, sadly, um, I remember thinking back to some of Jack's family members, and, and there's still a lot of bitterness, not just against Oregon State, but you can imagine being bitter how your father was treated uh, by the country that he loved, by the people he thought were classmates, etc. So it is happy in a way, but sad that anyone, you know, had to go through that before Jack passed away. He does have a daughter and at least a son still still alive in the Upper Northwest. The, And thank you again for sharing yeah. that, Brian. Brian Curtis, our guest. The other thing that you mentioned about being here for the 75th anniversary and the team and the families being introduced, how about the image of Andy himself with that orange cowboy hat at 99 years of age, walking out to wave the hat and wave to the fans. That's as bright and brilliant and beautiful of an image in all the years I've been doing Oregon State stuff, Brian. You got to see that and be around that. How special was that? He, he I mean, he, again, I think people just marveled at his age that he was still standing as late as he was. He was living by himself in his 90s, walking, driving, living in this big house. Not far from campus, by the way, as you guys probably know. Still going to football games. I think he, he was, people marveled at his age and his health. But then when you got to know him and heard his outlook on life, you were even more blown away by his positivity. And I'm so grateful that Andy, even for one particular, that ovation, because I remember it clearly when we were all in the end zone. And, and Jim Smith on the flip side uh, a few weeks after Oregon State, I was fortunate enough to go to Duke and speak at Duke, and we brought Jim Smith out on the field, and it, you could just see the lights open up in his eyes in Wallace Wade Stadium in Durham. Wallace Wade was being his Rose Bowl coach in 41-42. So it, it's just so great that these folks got to do it. It's great that Andy lived 
so close to campus and was so central to to Oregon State. Brian, the final thing, and thank you for again revisiting us and taking time. John, you've got something before I just we turn to loose. Follow. Did Smith and and Landforce? Did those two gentlemen know each other or of each other that they were the last two and get a chance to talk at all? They, gosh, this is going back seven or eight years right. now, so I'm trying to remember. They definitely knew of one another through me mm-hmm. because I had told them about it. I believe at one point. I had given Jim Smith's daughters Andy's number, and I can't remember, honestly, John, whether or not those two ever connected. Most of the connections happened at that 50th reunion in 91, and then a few times after that. But they definitely knew that each of the other was the only still living participant. What what is interesting, and and, and maybe there are folks in Oregon State, when I was at Duke in 2016, there were people that came up to me to say, I was an eight-year-old. I went to that game. <laughs> Here's my picture in the stands <laughs> from a picture in your book. Wow. So surely there are people, probably in Oregon, um, uh, Lon Steiner's uh, son being one, his, his daughter, uh, last I knew, was 87 and living in Arizona. She actually went on the train trip with him. So, there is another generation there, mm-hmm. but we're losing them yeah. uh, too fast, yeah. unfortunately, just like the, the World War II generation. And, uh, Brian, in talking about Andy Lansforth, whom uh, we lost after his amazing life on January 27th, we'll have more details about a, a, a public celebration coming up for Andy as we go here in the next few weeks. But the final thing, and John mentioned it, I do too. I don't know if you're free at all to share. I, I the book is so beautiful and vivid. <laughs> Do, is there a possibility? I know World War II film. I mean, the, the war has been plied by cinema. We've seen awesome, one, wonderful movies on many angles about the war, and we should. It's an incredible event in world history, and so the movies, I think, do for the most part a an amazing job of of kind of bringing a lot of that into truth and light and life. <laughs> is it possible we might see your book or aspects of your book? Do you have any kind of deal like that uh, going? From your lips to God's ears, um, <laughs> I, I have agents in Los Angeles that have been shopping the book mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years. We've had some, I'll leave their names out of it, yeah. pretty famous people that have read it or read the Sports Illustrated story. You know, getting a movie made is hard, as you guys may know. You know, your friend Mike Rich up there, I befriended during the process. Mike and I would talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm. And Mike's got tremendous experience as a screenwriter, of course. Um, so folks have optioned the rights for the movie. It just hasn't gotten made. Will it happen in my lifetime? Maybe. I'd yeah. love it to. Yeah. I think it would be great for, for Oregon State. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it's, it's really, to me, an incredible story about what these boys and as a now 51-year-old, then sometime mid-40s, never truly had an appreciation for what Pearl Harbor meant, for what World War II meant, for how it affected millions of people around the world, including Americans. And it gave me such an appreciation. And for your area, it opened my eyes to a part of the country that I really had not spent much time in. And like I said, just loved getting to know Oregon. And it's, it's heartwarming for me, guys how much Oregon State still cherishes that Men of Roses team 
you know, more than 80 years ago. Well said, Brian, and we do, and we thank you for all of the work you did on the book and touching many lives with it, and thank you for that and for sharing your thoughts about uh, the, the tremendous life of Andy Landforce with us here today. Great to talk to you again, Brian. I hope we can do it again down the road. Are you working on anything right now you can share with us? Uh, not yet. Yeah. I'm okay. getting there, though. Okay. Thanks, Brian. We'll if do it, it again. Say, I promise yeah. you if it has to do with Oregon State, you're my first call. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, Brian. Great talking to you again. Thank, thank, you. thank you, sir. Brian Curtis, author of Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War, it's a, a reprise of sorts. We talked about this in the late 2016 season, the 75th anniversary of that Rose Bowl team, but it's it's worth uh, another uh, revisit down the road. But in light of the passing of the last living link to that team, Andy Landforce right here in Corvallis, walking his three miles a day up and down West Hills Road. Steve Fink told me he used to see him up and down that road day after day after day for so many years just a few days shy of his 106th birthday. Our thanks to Brian Curtis for joining us. Another local legend, still very much with us. I think he's 72 now, class of CHS, Corvallis High School, 1969. It's been a while since we've talked to the great Bob Gilder. He joins us next to talk about the 16th hole and other matters on 1240 Joe Radio. Readers of the Albany Democrat Herald voted Stutzman Krupp Contractors the best roofer in the Mid-Valley for 2021 and 2022. As Stutzman and Krupp, they employ a large team of roofers so they get in and get it done, often just one day. Ask about their special winter rates, estimates are free, and there's financing available too. So if you need a new roof, call or stop by their showroom on Rice Street in Albany. Stutzman and Krupp Contractors, they do it right. CCB 96278. If you're fed up with dirty grout lines, maybe it's time to consider Cultured Marble. Hi, I'm Katie Albin at Albin's Plumbing in Corvallis. Cultured Marble is an affordable way to get the look of marble, and the best part is no grout lines. Affordable and easy to maintain. Come by our showroom on 9th Street in Corvallis and see the beautiful look of Cultured Marble. At Albin's Plumbing, plumbing's all we do. Call 754-8282, Albin's Plumbing. For auto glass solutions, better call a glass man. Call 541-760-2277. Call the glass man. Hi, this is Jake the Glass Man. Let me fix the crack in your glass. For windshield repair, call me first. For auto glass solutions, better call a glass man. Call 541-760-2277. Call the glass man. If you or someone you know need dependable medical transportation, Gap Patient Services is family-owned and operated, offering safe and reliable non-emergency medical transportation in Lynn and Benton counties. Gap Patient Services operates 24-7 and offers wheelchair and ambulatory transport short and long distances, and much more. Gap riders also enjoy every seventh ride free. Terms and conditions apply. Call Gap Patient Services at 541-250-7797 or visit GapTRA.com. Have you been putting off that home remodeling project? Have you decided that this is the year to get it done? For nearly 35 years, people in the Mid Valley have been going to Corvallis Floor Covering. Stop by and browse through their large showroom with a wide variety of carpet, countertops, window coverings, and wood and luxury vinyl flooring from all the popular brands. 
Corvallis Floor Covering at the corner of 2nd and Van Buren downtown or at CorvallisFloorCovering.com. Shop local. Shop Corvallis Floor Covering. Now's the time to get a great deal on a Kubota BX23S compact tractor. On display now at Lynn Benton Tractor in Tangent. The BX23S compact tractor is rated number one in durability and owner experience and with performance matched attachments. It's easy to operate too. You can get a Kubota BX23S compact tractor for as low as $0 down and 0% APR for up to 60 months now through June 30th. See Lynn Benton Tractor or go to KubotaUSA.com for a full disclaimer. Unified Insurance Group is your local independent insurance agency in Corvallis. They represent numerous insurance companies and specialize in auto, home, and business insurance. See Mike Eves, Taylor Starr, and Tom Worth. They'll help find an insurance plan that works best for you. If you're looking for auto, home, or business insurance, see the Unified Insurance Group. 320 Southwest 3rd Street in downtown Corvallis. They're your hometown team, always putting you first. We continue on the Joe Beaver Show. Mike Parker, TJ Matthews, and John Warren had to hustle out to go see a specialist. So, John, I hope you enjoy. I know I'm looking forward to it as you were, but the appointment precludes John's participation. Young TJ, who was just at uh, the Waste Management Phoenix Open in uh, Scottsdale this past weekend, and that, I think, had seats at the 16th hole. <laughs> I want to get our next guest viewpoint, attitude uh, towards that phenomenon in, in his sport here in a moment. But first things first, it's just simply a pleasure to reconnect with Bob Gilder here on the Joe Beaver Show. It's been a long time, Bob. Thank you for making time. I hear that you're kind of back in town now. What's going on with you here of late? <laughs> yeah, we left the sunshine down there. <laughs> uh, we'd lived there for about uh, seven and a half, eight years. And uh, we just decided to come back and uh, be a little closer to family. Well, good for you. Uh, and is that... You love the sunshine there. TJ grew up in uh, Wash, Seattle, and went to school at Arizona State, as did you. There's something about that sunshine that makes you feel pretty good, but you feel like, hey, it's time to be back family over the great weather this time of your life right now, huh? <laughs> well, that's that's generally the, the consensus of a lot of people that are there for, uh, you know, their 50s and 60s, and then they get in their 70s, and they decide they want to be back by family. Yeah, so uh, that's a little bit like what we did. Well, welcome back. Great to have you back. Look forward to seeing you around the community. Bob Gilder, our guest, Corvallis High School class of 1969. As you were coming up as a young man in this town, Bob, were you, did you have a hankering? Did you know you were going to be going somewhere warm when you walked on at Arizona State? Uh, you mean permanent? I mean, yeah. for a while? Yeah, there, I mean, was it always uh, no, an idea to not. get out of town <laughs> and go well, somewhere else? You know, when I when I went down there, the first few days I was there was 117, <laughs> and I didn't have any air conditioning in my dorm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering what I was doing. <laughs> but it grew on you, evidently. <laughs> yes, it did, yes. It definitely did. It's it's a wonderful place to be in the winter time and the spring and uh, and the fall can be pretty warm also. So uh, yeah, you know, got to pick your times down there. But Bob, isn't that where you know, I don't know how what your status was in the sport 
as you were coming up and playing it. But is that where your game and, and refining your game, and it did it come together for you there at Arizona State? How were you playing before you got down there? Well, I was just a, uh, a kid who wanted to play golf. And uh, I really hadn't made up my mind when, I, you know, I wanted to do it for a living. I just enjoyed it. And uh, when I walked down there, uh, they had five all-Americans on the first team. And uh, it was uh, pretty tough to break in down there. I think I, I broke in my second year and uh, played a little bit then. And then the third and fourth year down there, uh, uh, I played quite a bit. I got tuition my senior year. <laughs> nice. So I was the definite walk-on. <laughs> <laughs> Live that walk-on world until you became a, a WAC champion. Was that your senior year that you were a WAC champion? You finally got, got a little bit of help with your uh, studies and your books and so on? Yes, yes. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because I, I, I ended up joining a fraternity where um, there were about – four of the golf team in this fraternity. I didn't even know it when I went there. I only went there because it had air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> but but I ended up meeting Tom and Paul Pertzer. Uh, Tom and I were, were pledge buddies and, and went on tour together. And, and uh, then there was uh, an, a kid named Dave Sheff. He went on tour for a little while, and, and he was in the house. And a couple other really good players. And, and you know, I learned a lot from them over time and and we played together all the time and and my game did get uh quite a bit better down there and uh um i didn't decide to really go professional until my senior year in college and, and uh that's when i decided uh you know that's what i wanted to do for a living and you ended up having a tremendous career and living a 24-time winner professionally six times on the PGA Tour. And your first was, perhaps appropriately, the Phoenix Open in 76, your first PGA Tour win. Because it was the first, Bob, can you recall shots and, and moments pretty vividly from that first win in Phoenix? Uh, I can recall, um, yes, it was, it was, I had met the, my coach on the Tuesday of that tournament before it started and my I he worked for Ping also who the the uh, golf clubs that I used and uh he worked with me on this Tuesday and and by the time the tournament started I was I was kind of like shooting like shooting arrows and uh it was a narrow golf course and uh I had a lot of confidence there because I was hitting it straight and uh I ended up winning the tournament and you know, one of the one of the interesting things was on the very last hole of the tournament, we had to wait on the tee at the par five. I kind of waited for the group ahead of us to get out, and and uh, uh, my um, when the when the group in front of us cleared, I saw this guy running across the fairway, and I looked at my playing partner and I said, "You know, I know that I know that stride," and it was my dad. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So we had to wait for him to get across the fairway. <laughs> what was but, your dad uh, up to? I mean, did, did you? I'm sure you had a laugh about it with him afterwards. But why was he in that in that mode at that I, moment? You know, I, I I think he was just you know waiting to get across after the the group had cleared, <laughs> and they wouldn't let him they wouldn't let him across at that time and and until 
the group ahead of us cleared. So uh, he was just trying to get, you know, so he could get up closer to the green. <laughs> Good for him. Uh, Bob Gilder, our guest, you won again there in 83. I don't want to skip past 82 and a memorable moment in your career and in the, the modern day of the sport. But in 83, Bob, and I've never asked you about this in previous conversations, I don't know how many eight-hole sudden-death playoffs in the history of your sport there have been, but you persevered to win the Open again in Phoenix in 83. Rex Caldwell, Johnny Miller, Mark O'Meara, and you emerged as the winner. <laughs> what about that and what that was like to go through that kind of sudden-death playoff? It's interesting because I had like a 10-footer on the last hole to win outright. And and it's pretty interesting what goes through your mind when you have a putt like that to uh, win the tournament, and uh, otherwise you're going into this big playoff. Uh, I got over the ball, and I'm thinking, hmm, this telecast, the Super Bowl telecast comes on right after this. If I miss this putt, I'm going to screw screw up a telecast. <laughs> And certainly I missed the putt and went into an eight-hole playoff. But uh, it's it's kind of like we we went to a par three first, and it was over water. It was about a four-iron shot. And, and what I happened to hit a very good shot in there, but, but it's, it's like being in a clearing and there's the, you know, there's people shooting at you from all around. And it's, it's kind of intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you know, it, to win that, I, I read a little bit about the, the the personality of, and I'm not fam- I'm familiar certainly with the other names you were involved in the playoff with, with Johnny Miller and Marco Mira. Rex Caldwell, I'm not sure. I don't know him. He's not as familiar to me, but based on an article I read about that playoff and about him, Bob, with respect to personality in the sport and attracting fans and luring fans, what do you remember about Rex and his his style on the course? Well, you know, he had um, up to that point that particular year, uh, he had come close to winning and had lost, uh, I think, to Keith Fergus at the at the uh, the Bob Hope Classic, and uh, I think he had come real close the week before or something in another tournament, and he just didn't get it done. And uh, he was a good player, and uh, um, but he, you know, he hadn't won anything yet, and so, um, you know, he was. I played with him uh, some on some mini tours before I got on tour, and I knew Rex, uh, um, and he was a good player. He was just a little, little bit different. He was tall and, and kind of uh, had a long stride, but uh, you know, he was a good player, a good guy. He just, he never quite got it done though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to, you take, even with all your, your top 10 finishes and the wins, you don't take, it's hard to win, isn't it, Bob? I mean, I don't know how, when you look back over a great career, 10 time winner on the champions tour, six times on the PGA, 24 times winning professional events, being part of a Ryder cup championship team. That's you must share. I would think you would cherish looking back at a career with those accomplishments, you know how difficult it is to do that. Well, it is difficult. I mean, there's there's really nothing you can do about the other guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to score as low as you can, and and you're the one that you have to deal with. 
because really there's nothing you can do about them. If they're going to make a birdie, they're going to make a birdie. Um, you know, winning is, is it, you got to get yourself in the position first and then you got to lose a few times and, and tell you feel comfortable with it. And, and then you, uh, um, like I said, you, you start to feel a little more comfortable each time you get yourself in that situation and, and pretty soon you, you, you cherish it and uh, you can't wait to get in that, that position to be able to win. And it just doesn't happen that often uh, for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, when you get there, you're, you're all in. And uh, what, you know, what happens happens. And, and not all the time can you control it. So, uh, you know, there's a little bit of luck involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, you see a lot of times out there now, you see guys 63 the last day or 64, 65. That's a heck of a score. There's nothing you can do about that. You shoot your 68 and you lose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, um, it's, it's tough to win. Uh, it's tough to, um, you know, adapt to a different golf course every week. You know, the different conditions, uh, different weather, uh, different grass and, and that, and, and that takes a real, uh, person that can really adapt to those situations. And, and it's not easy. Bob, you were honest enough to admit Bob Gilder, our guest here on the Joe Beaver show that in 83 with a 10 footer to win, you got into your own head maybe a little bit more than you usually did. I mean, you started well, to think about the magnitude of everything. <laughs> well, you know, it just goes to show you what can, can come into your mind when, uh, you know, sometimes you don't have control over that. Right. And, and it was like, what? I, I was over the putt thinking this, and I'm thinking, what are you thinking about this for? Just go ahead and hit the putt. But it was in there and uh, couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> well, it came out okay because you persevered in an eight extra holes in a classic event. The year before, you had one of the great golf shots ever at the Manufacturer's Hanover Classic, now the Buick uh, Invitational or Buick Classic. I'm wondering about when you when you lined up the shot for the double eagle on the par 5, 509, 18th hole at the Westchester Country Club. There's a plaque there that I understand they had to move to get it right because the initial placement of the plaque was incorrect. But tell us about that incredible shot. In your great golf career, is that still the biggest and best shot you ever had? Well, it's it's one of the really great shots. There's some other ones that are in situations that uh, you think might have been a crucial putt at a crucial time. But uh, that seemed to be a uh, – I, I ended up going into that hole with a four-shot lead over okay. Tom Kite. And uh, – we both drove it well on that hole, and, and uh, I happened to hit it in the hole for my second shot, and uh, he birdied the hole and, and lost two shots, and, and I ended up having a six-shot lead going into the last round. <laughs> so it, it, wasn't, it, it was crucial, but it, it wasn't like the last hole of the tournament. Yeah. It- so, but it was, it was pretty neat because uh, Vin Scully and, and uh, uh, Ken Venturi were in the, the – um, the tower and, and, uh, you know, they, they made quite the, the, um, 
uh, story out of it at the time. You know, they said they almost fell out of their chairs. But, uh, <laughs> it was it was something that uh, I'll never forget, and and I have a CD of it, and it's pretty neat to go back and watch it. You mentioned Vin Scully, uh, the late great Dodger announcer for sixty-seven years. We associate Vin with baseball, certainly, and that's you know what what he went into the Hall of Fame and so on for. As a as a competitor at the highest level in the in the sport of golf, Bob, how, what did you make of Vin as a as a golf announcer? Was he pretty good? I think, yeah. I mean, he was very knowledgeable about golf, and uh, you know, you hang around people like Ken Venturi and 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 you do enough golf telecasts. I mean, you get you get pretty good at it. And he obviously had the gift of gab to start with, and and. Uh, he knew the game, and, and uh, he was he was very knowledgeable. I enjoyed listening to him. Last couple of things with Bob Gilder. Before, I do want to get your thoughts as someone uh, in when you were early and winning so regularly on the Champions Tour. You, if I remember correctly, Bob, and reading about you a little bit, you were always sort of on the front edge of about trying to engage fans, and you were with innovations and miking up golfers and Internet chats and these types of things. So I want to get your thoughts on what what has become of the amazing phenomenon in at the Phoenix Open here in a moment, the 16th hole. But before we leave off your own career, there was an aspect to it I was never aware of until reading and preparing to visit with you today. Were you pretty active in Trans Am races, 85 to 92? I mean, how many of those did you do, and how did you get onto that? I was not that active. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how it got to that point, but... Uh... I drove one race and, and uh, okay. turned in a race there in Portland and, and had a great time. It was a hobby. Okay. And, and uh, you know, I, I entered some, some races that uh, were at the right time for me. I only did maybe uh, four or five races per year. That's all I had time to do. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed each one of them, and I was trying to learn how to be a better driver each time I got in the car. Um, consequently, I was doing it when I was trying to play professional golf on the PGA Tour, and, and there just wasn't enough time. Yeah. Uh, I was just learning. Okay. And, uh, it was uh, it, it a fast learning curve. <laughs> what put you on that track, though? I mean, did you always have an interest in cars growing up and racing? I mean, did you go to races with your dad and your family growing up or what? No, no, I did not. I, I, I loved cars. I always had an interest in cars. Uh, it wasn't until I met uh, two gentlemen here in Portland that uh, kind of got me interested in, in maybe driving a car. And uh, um, uh, it wasn't until them that I really got interested in driving and, and we took it from there. They got me, they got me started and I went to a couple of, uh, driving schools, uh, the Bondurant school a couple of times and, and, uh, learned some things and, and, uh, then you just got to get out there and, and jump in. And that's pretty much what I was doing. Did you ever, did anybody ever say to you in your sport, Bob, be careful. I mean, what are you doing this for? You have a great career going as a golfer. This can be a little bit on the adventuresome, dangerous living on the edge side. You never had concerns along those lines. Well, not really. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. I guess, uh, you know, I thought it was better than trying to fly an airplane. You only get one chance on that one if you go down. (laughs) Did you? But, uh, yeah. I figured I could bounce off a couple of walls and still make it. 
<laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I would never do, um, uh, open wheel. I would always do a closed wheel car. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was something around the tires so you didn't go upside down mm -hmm. or something like that. But, uh, yeah. you know, I was, I was pretty careful. Um, if there was, if there was a hole that, uh, somebody else wanted, you know, I'd give it to them. Right. <laughs> right. I got you. But, uh, you know, I, I had a family at that time, and I was uh, trying to be safe also, but uh, I was just trying to learn how to drive a car. Interesting part of your life I wasn't aware of. You did have a nice fallback position. You didn't have to win on the Trans Am Tour, so that's nice no, to know. I did not. Yeah. 44 I top 10 finishes, 44 top 10 finishes in your great career. Uh and the two-time winner at the Phoenix Open, ten-time winner on the Champions Tour, six wins on the on the PGA Tour, all of that, Bob. I, I always felt like in reading about you and just your your amicable, affable personality, you were fan friendly, enjoyed fans, they liked you. It, did you feel a, a sense then, and even on the Champions Tour early in those years, we need to we need to find ways to draw in fans? That's a big picture question. Before we get to the specifics of what goes on in Phoenix. Now, but how important was that part of your sport to you? Well, I, you know, it, 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 you transition, you transition uh, into uh, that type of situation. Uh, at first, when you first get out there, you think everybody is watching you, and you're going to make mistakes, and everybody sees every mistake you're ever going to make. And uh, then you get a little more comfortable with that, and you realize, hey, I'm out here to entertain these people. And really, it's an, it's it's an entertainment sport. It, for me, it's I mean, for for the players, you're trying to make a living. You're doing what you're passionate about, and and you you learn to turn that around into a sport where you're entertaining these people, and the, and you get comfortable with entertaining, and and really getting to know the people a little bit, and and interacting with them. And uh, I think that's a it's it's. It, it's a situation that evolves as the longer you're out there. And obviously there are different personalities of, of players that are much easier at it than, uh, than other players. And, and you see some people that, um, you know, have a hard time smiling and having mm -hmm. a good look like they're having a good time because it takes a lot of concentration, but there are others that, uh, you know, are very jovial and, and that's just their personality. And, uh, but it's hard to interact sometimes and really focus on what you're doing because it's 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 high level, and um, um, you've got to get comfortable with it. Some people just don't get comfortable mm -hmm. with it, and others do. And the people that can get comfortable in that situation and be able to focus on their game uh, and still and still be uh, interactive with the crowd and, and the people, um, uh, they're going to do better, I think. But, um, you know, eventually you got to learn that uh, you're out there to entertain these people. All of that said, Bob, what do you make of the 16th hole in its current incarnation over the last however many years they've been having this big tailgate party with bleachers and fans <laughs> and all that? What do you make of all that? Well, um, you know, when I was out there, there were a few holes around the country on certain golf courses that uh, – that facilitated a situation like that. And, uh, usually, um, 
you know, when they served too much beer and, and they had a tent around <laughs> type of green or amphitheater like that, uh, it could get pretty rowdy. Um, I remember uh, one of the first times that I played there at the TPC, uh, I was playing with Hal Sutton, and it happened to be the year that Tiger uh, was playing also. And um, we were about two groups in front of him. And Hal and I got to the 18th tee, and we heard this huge roar. And we looked at each other, and we said, I said, Tiger must have made an ace on the 16th. <laughs> because, because even when we were there, they had stands around it, but it wasn't encased like it is now. I mean, that's just, it's like a, a football stadium right. that's, that's completely encased in, in uh, seats and uh, three levels. And it wasn't that way then. They had, they had seats on both sides and everything and around the back. But uh, now you've got to go through the tunnel just to get in there and out. But, uh, you know, it was, I mean, you're standing there on the tee and they're still betting on you and you can hear them, you know, <laughs> betting with each other and everything. And it, it's, it's a little intimidating. <laughs> and I can imagine it's even more intimidating now. Uh, I quit playing before they start putting, they, encasing the hole. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it was, uh, it, it it's, and then, then when they started having the caddies run down the, and, and, you know, chase each other to the green uh that was kind of funny but uh you know i think they cut that out <laughs> kind of funny something you welcome i mean is it good for the sport should the phoenix open now sort of be in your view bob the place well okay that we know that this kind of stuff really goes on at a high level there we don't want it now to find its way around the country because that's just not what the sport is how do you feel about that well, it's unique to Phoenix. Um, but I don't think there's another hole quite like that other than maybe the 17th at TPC, but uh, that's not in case. That has quite a few people around it, and, and uh, uh, it's a unique hole. And, and, uh, but, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I think the, the, the crowds there are just phenomenal yep. in Phoenix. I mean, they're just huge. And, and it's, I think it's the, the weather, uh, the, the way they present the golf tournament. Um, I mean, they have tents that, uh, you can have parties in and, and, uh, it's, it's, it has really grown. And I think the facility, uh, the TPC there in, in uh, Scottsdale has, uh, facilitated that, um, and, it's been able to grow like that. So, uh, it, it all depends on the people too. If they're going to come out, I mean, they have, you know, they have upwards of 150, what, 150,000 there in one day at a time. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I don't go there. I didn't go there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to fight those crowds. <laughs> Bob, it has been a real pleasure to connect with you again. Say hi to Peggy for me, please. It's been a while I since will. I've seen you and your family, but thank you for making time for us today on the show. You bet. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Bob. Bob Gilder, our guest. Let's take a final break and wrap it up on 1240 Joe Radio.
If you feel you're overpaying on your taxes and you're not as profitable as you should be, you're not alone. At Tax and Wealth Management in Corvallis, they can help because that's what they do. They work with individuals and business owners to lower your taxes, increase your profit, and manage your cash flow. They provide bookkeeping and payroll services too. Give them a call at 541-753-4185. That's 753-4185. And get in the game. Tax and Wealth Management in Corvallis, your hometown tax team. And go Beeves. Hey, everyone. If you're looking for an appliance like a refrigerator or a freezer or dishwasher, cooking appliances, washers and dryers, or an appliance accessory, contact Kellenberger Appliance in Lebanon, the best place to buy appliances at 21 Main Street in Lebanon. They offer install and delivery on the product they sell, like Whirlpool, Frigidaire, Maytag, Speed Queen. They even offer service on most major brands. Kellenberger Appliance at 21 Main Street in Lebanon and on the web at kellenbergers.com. What happens when you're voted the best new car dealership and the best used car dealership in the Mid-Willamette Valley? Do you gloat about it? Or do you just simply say the complete redesigned CRV, HRV, Civic, Pilot, and Accords are now at Power Honda in Albany off of Sandy M Highway for you to take a test drive? I think you do both. And for more information, go to mypowerhonda.com. That's mypowerhonda.com. Unified Insurance Group is your local independent insurance agency in Corvallis. They represent numerous insurance companies and specialize in auto, home, and business insurance. See Mike Eves, Taylor Starr, and Tom Worth. They'll help find an insurance plan that works best for you. If you're looking for auto, home, or business insurance, see the Unified Insurance Group, 320 Southwest 3rd Street in downtown Corvallis. They're your hometown team, always putting you first. Hi, Beaver Nation. This is Damian Martinez, all-conference running back and packs up offensive freshman of the year. Damian stays on his feet, turns the corner. Damian Collective, the preferred collective of Oregon State Athletics, is a one-stop shop for all OSC student-athletes and teams to create, optimize, and promote their brand, their name, image, and likeness opportunities. Visit damnationcollective.com to commit. Go Beavs. And picking his way into the end zone, up the middle, Damian Martinez. Touchdown, Beavers. John and TJ will take you the rest of the way this week. Uh, we learned today Ben Ferrer out for a while with Mono. Mitch Cannon revealed that. A lot of baseball K-E-J-O stuff coming. See you in Pullman. And translator, K2290i Corvallis. The home of the Beavers. 1240 Joe Radio. 